And uh, I'm part of just a tremendous pastoral team here, guys, that love the Lord, <clears throat> like to emphasize who Jesus is and the gospel and the word. And so if you're new here, again, just want to say thank you for being here. We pray for uh, people just like you to come and visit our church, that you would be impacted by who Jesus is, that you would experience why we sing, why we worship, and why we learn about God, and, and that you would find him beautiful, and that you would come into a relationship with him that truly is life-changing. And if that's you, just want to say we're glad you're here. And if you are looking to get plugged in or, or wanting to introduce yourself to us uh, in a little bit more formal manner, uh, our info booth is the place to go. It's just outside to my right, your left. Uh, it's a great place to sign up for our newsletter and all the things that are happening uh, in the church. We're trying to communicate more and more digitally because we just so much uh, going on. Every week, people come to me and say, can I announce this? Can I announce this? Can I announce this? And, and I'm really trying to avoid church sounding like a big infomercial uh, and, and, uh, and trying to just emphasize the word. But a couple of things we do want to let you know uh, of. One is uh, Night in Bethlehem uh, is on the horizon, which is our big event we do for two nights. And we turn the entire sanctuary into first century Bethlehem. There's little tents and there's period uh, time food and, and there's all kinds of stuff to do for your kids. It's a great family event to come to. Uh, and so uh, we need help with that. Uh, people who want to dress up, people who want get, to get, look, look like a Bible character. Uh, if you think you're really buff, you can dress like a Roman soldier um, or, or not. If you're skinny, you could do it as well. Uh, but we're looking for people who want to dress up. People just won't be intimidated by you is all. Um, and then uh, we're also looking uh, for, um, she, she told me um, that we need uh, donations. The only need that we have for donations is toilet paper rolls, which I thought was interesting. It's for one of the crafts. Now, we don't want toilet paper on the roll. We want the cardboard roll, which when you donate those will kind of give us an insight into your family. So... Um, <laughs> The more kids you have, the more roles you should have. So, uh, and then, of course, Thanksgiving is coming up. Ann Graham is here this morning. She helps with uh, those who serve those in the Senior Center for Thanksgiving. We're good on volunteers there, but we just need some food, certain food donations. We're good on turkey, but need a couple other items. And so if you want to donate items, uh, Ann will be at the info booth uh, for that. And then our youth group, uh, which uh, is doing really well, doing an amazing job. Caleb's doing great. Uh, in transition over there. Uh, he's doing a, a Thanksgiving Friendsgiving at 5.30 p.m. for both junior high and senior high. So normally, our junior high meets at 5.30, and then our senior high uh, meets later on in the evening. But he's going to do a big event together with all of them and feed them and let them hang out. So if you have a junior high student, uh, please come to that. Senior high student, same. Uh, come to that. And uh, that's it for announcements. And then want to let you know, too, I guess this is an announcement as well. We we have, for the last four weeks, uh, been live for our services. So all of our services are live. They're only available right now on uh, Facebook. And then I just emphasize there that that, um, that is to be, we, we're desiring that to be used as a tool for those who can't be here. We have a lot of people who are out of the area that come here seasonally that utilize that. There have been quite a bit of views. We've been getting great feedback on it. Um, we're still working on the sound a little bit, so be patient as we dial that into perfection. Uh, and then we would just say that we do not want the, the live feed to replace the, the God-ordained uh, need that we have for relationship and community and what it means to speak into each other's lives and to hold each other accountable and 
to hug and to high-five and, and to just be in relationship with other Christians. So we would ask that, that you wouldn't make that your normal place of worship because we don't think it would be healthy. I know my wife uh, is tuning in. I don't know if she's tuning into the service, but if she is, I love you. Uh, and um, she, we, had, we had two kids wake up in the middle of the night last night sick, uh, which is just super awesome. And so uh, she's, she's trying to take care of them. So just make note of that. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. This morning, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you want a Bible, you want to follow along, raise your hand. One of the ushers will gladly <clears throat> give you uh, a Bible that you can use while, while we go through the service here. And if you would, um, I'll just give you a moment to, to hand those out. <clears throat> we, we love the Word of God, and we want to honor the Lord's Word. So uh, as you turn to Galatians 4, Would you stand with me if you're able to this morning? We're going to read starting in verse 21. Chapter 4 of Galatians, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the, the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Lord, Minister to us, we ask that you would remove distraction, Lord, and any negative emotion, or even, Lord, the the spiritual battle that exists that we can't see that would keep us from understanding your word. Give us clarity of mind. Give us a heart of worship and gratitude that you would do a work in us that lasts for eternity. Help us to see your face this morning as clear as day, a face that loves us, a face that is set towards us for blessing and not for cursing. And we trust you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You may be seated. The title of this morning, this morning's message is Hagar's Slavery or Sarah's Freedom. Paul has planted this church, if you remember, and he planted it uh, with the understanding that you and I and those in first century church and the first century church that we're saved by grace alone. We're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by works. We're saved not because of what we do and how we do it. Uh, we can't earn God's favor because of our works. There's not enough prayers we can say. There's not enough tithing we can give. There's not a, enough serving we can serve in. There's just not enough that we can possibly do as people to earn God's love. It's because of the promise that is of Jesus Christ. Earlier in Galatians, to prove this point, because these teachers were in the church, these Judaizers were in the church teaching In order to be saved, you needed not only Jesus, you needed something else in addition to Jesus. And Paul said that's absolutely false. 
And he says, all that we need to be saved, this is the premise of the whole book of Galatians, is a relationship with Jesus because of what Jesus does. Not because of what anybody else has done or said, but because of Jesus. Earlier in Galatians, Paul goes back to the promise of Abraham, that we are saved because of the promise God gave to Abraham uh, back in the Old Testament, uh, not because of what happened on Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments, the tablets, the law of God, came down from this mountain uh, that we're not saved by that because that's what the Jews, Judaizers were saying. In order to be saved, you need the law, you need the tablets, you need the Mosaic Covenant, you need, you need the ceremonial laws, you need all of these things, you need circumcision, you need all of it. And if you don't have it, then you're not going to be saved. So it's not, it's not sufficient to say that Jesus alone is saved. And Paul is saying, no, it is Jesus alone. He's arguing against the Judaizers and he's saying, this is absolutely untrue and it's detrimental to your spiritual life if you live this way. And so now he goes back and he shows that that salvation by grace has always been God's plan. And he brings up this relationship between Abraham and Sarah and another woman by the name of Hagar. Uh, And we'll get to that in a moment, but I want you to see something that's key in which Paul is uh, saying to the church at this time in regards to the word of God, the word of God that is before us, the holy scriptures that we have just read and given honor to. Uh, Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, those of you who desire to be under the law, he asked a question, do you really listen to the law? He's talking about the Old Testament. Do Do you actually know the law? Do you actually know the word of God? Look at the next verse after verse 21 and verse 22. He says, for it is written. This is another way of saying, this is what the scriptures say. This is what the Bible says. And then if you will, again, uh, look at verse 30. But what does the scripture say? All of this is Paul is reminding, reminding the church again, and I'm reminding the church again, that we need nothing else other than the spoken word of God himself. And that is where we get freedom from God's word, which is the Bible. Uh, Jesus says it this way in Matthew 4, 4, it is written. This is written, he says. This is God's word. This is God speaking to us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, Jesus said that if you're going to live, you not only need physical food and substance, you also need spiritual substance. You need to be eating of God's word. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that God's word is so powerful that it's like a, a, a living, active sword that pierces between the bone and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit, and shows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the importance of the word of God. What he essentially is saying to the Judaizers, which I am by way saying to our church, you have said you've read the Bible, but do you really know the Bible? And specifically in context, this idea that we're saved by grace alone. I heard one commentator say in regards to the spoken word of the Bible, the word of God, don't say God is silent when your Bible is closed. Or as another author has said before, If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. Or if you want to hear God shout, well, then yell while you do it. The idea is that God has spoken. Spurgeon added to this and said, no one, the great great evangelist Spurgeon said, no one ever outgrows the scriptures. The book widens and deepens with our years. Uh, Now, I have to say this because, because... We live in a time where we literally are heaping uh, just 
upon pastor after pastor, preacher after preacher, uh, men and, and now women that will speak in ways that will tickle our ears and entertain us. In fact, I had a conversation with a lady yesterday. It was emotional for her to share with me that, that she was leaving her current church and going to another church closer to where she lives because the church that she'd been part of for several years was no longer teaching the word of God in the way in which it was being taught. She said, rather, instead, we're getting great stories and great narratives. Uh, in fact, if you ever get a card in the mail about a church or you ever go to a website on a church, we get people who visit here all the time. Uh, I was actually reading that uh, California now has, just in last year alone, California had 200,000 more people leave California than came into California. There's an exodus of people moving to California. There might be, might be you this morning. You're saying, I got to get out of this state. And if you do, you're going to have to find a new church wherever you go. And you'll pull up on a website and you'll see these are the kind of the, the things that, that churches now say uh, to describe themselves. Things like uh, we are, we're exciting, uh, we're innovative, right? We're um, inspirational messages. You, have you seen these kind of things? These are all emotional words to get you to pull in that we are exciting. We have an amazing kids program. We, we have a, amazing worship and songs. We've got a pastor who is entertaining and he's not boring. We have commonplace messages that speak into the heart and move you and shake you. And the emphasis is on the emotional realm. Uh, rather, we see as a church, and we see within Scripture, what a church needs more than anything else is for the Word of God to be preached and to be preached in such a way that it is practical, but that it rubs against the flesh, which, which sometimes we don't like. You know how you know if the preacher's actually doing a good job? Sometimes you don't like what he's saying. Sometimes it makes you feel uncomfortable. Uh, but, but, but there's never a lack of the bomb upon the uncomfortability that you are a sinner and that you're in need of saving grace. And then the bomb is the gospel that Jesus loves you in spite of you. This is what is in Scripture. You are a utter failure. You have fallenness in your nature. You are depraved from the moment of conception, Scripture says. These are things that are not popular. These are things that people don't like to say because, after all, we're, we're great. We're good people. Don't tell me I'm a bad person. I've never killed anybody. Well, congratulations. You haven't obtained anything. And then the Bible comes in and says, in spite of our sinful nature, he desires to bridge the gap. And so Paul is saying to the Judaizers, he said, listen, listen now, I don't think you've actually seen that the idea that one is saved by grace alone has been something that's been taught all the way back in the Old Testament, specifically using Abraham. Uh, and Sarah and Hagar. Before we get there, though, Moody said it like this. A quickening that will last. That word quickening means something that comes alive, whether by being born again, coming into an encounter, a relationship with Jesus Christ, or an awakening that occurs in your spiritual life in regards to the process of sanctification and growth. An awakening in your marriage, an awakening in your parenting, or in your loving of your neighbor. That kind of quickening, Moody said, that lasts, one that is is that sticks with you must come through the word of God, he said. Man, a man stood up, Moody said, in one of his church meetings and said that he hoped out of the series of meetings that the series of meetings would last him a lifetime. What he said was, 
Hopefully, by sitting in church at least one time, I'll get enough of Jesus and enough of the Bible to last me a lifetime. And Moody responded. He said, well, you might as well try to have one breakfast to last you a lifetime. And what he was saying was that you need to continually feed yourself the food of Scripture just as you need to continually feed yourself the food of the world. And so this is Paul's kind of theme here before we get into the rest of what we're about to get into. You have to know the Scriptures. You've got to get into the Bible, and I'll tell you that the enemy will do everything that he can to keep you from understanding it, wanting to engage it, and seeing it as life-giving. You must fight it. So then Paul then moves into this Abraham relationship that Abraham has between two women, one which is his wife and one which is Hagar. In the text, Abraham actually says, I'm sorry, not Abraham, Paul, actually says these women exemplify, if you're looking at the text before you in verse 24, these women exemplify two covenants. Two covenants. Uh, A covenant just is a a million-dollar word for two promises. In context, what Paul is saying is, actually, there's two paths to salvation. Now, don't crucify me yet because you say there's only one road. Uh, But he's saying essentially there's two paths of salvation. There's two promises, one which is obtainable and one which is not obtainable. The obtainable one uh, is the one that comes from Jesus alone. The unobtainable one is the one that comes from actually living according to the law perfectly. So one covenant is grace and the other covenant is you have to actually be perfect to get to heaven. Anybody perfect in the room? Okay, so no one in the room gets to heaven through their own perfection because we know none of us are perfect. In fact, it's one of the ways in which we know that we need a Savior because down deep, we know that we're not good enough at anything we do. And it's never enough, right? You know if you're a husband, at times you felt that you've done a horrible job at other times you felt like you've done a horrible job, (laughs) You know that you you can't ever fulfill what your wife wants. And if you're a wife this morning, you know that you don't possess the power to fulfill your husband perfectly. Your kids can't do it. Your job can't do it. No amount of money can do it. So we know that there's this deep down desire that, that, that we need saving something and we either will obtain salvation in life or in anything that we do through one of these two paths. We either earn it ourselves or we get it by grace. And the the idea that Paul is stating here is that you can't ever work for it. So the promise, he says, to to teach this, he goes back to the promise made to Abraham, which we have to go back to that promise again. So if you would, please turn to Genesis chapter 12 and look at verse 1 with me. And while you're doing that, also go to Genesis chapter 16. So you kind of keep your fingers uh, in those two passages. Genesis, if you're not aware, is in the very first book of the Bible. This is the promise. Genesis 12, verse 1. It's always good to hear the sound of turning pages in the Bible. It's good. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said this to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. He says, Abraham, leave everything you know, take a step of faith, and just go in the direction I'll show you. I'm not going to show you yet what direction, but go. 
It goes on, I will make of you, here's the promise, I'll make of you a great nation, I'll bless you, I'm going to make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is, this is biblical language now for Abraham. The promises of God, the salvation of God, will now be for all people, through you, not just the Jews, but every tribe, every tongue, every people, every place, every gender, every race, will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through the promise of Jesus. Through you, this is going to happen. So in verse 4, Abraham went, as the Lord told him, Lot with him. And Abraham, when he did this, it's kind of a key point here, he was 75 years old. And he departed from Haran. They were old. Both Abraham and Sarah were both old. And they were barren for a decade, for 10 years and then we pick up the story in Genesis 16.1. So remember now, God said, Abraham, you're going to have a child through your child. That child is going to give birth towards the Messiah. This is essentially what he's being told. That Messiah through him is going to come the salvation of every tribe and tongue that believes upon Jesus in faith. That's the promise I've given you. Ten years have passed. There's no child, which is kind of a big deal because if you haven't had a child by the time you were 75 and ten years have passed, there's a good chance you're thinking, there's no way on God's green earth I'm going to have a child at 85. Nonetheless, this is what happens. Now, Genesis 16:1 picks up. Now, Sarah, Sarai, which is Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. However, she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. And it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Okay. This is crazy. But not necessarily in the historical time period too off base. Do you understand something? Number one, Abraham was given by God directly that God came to Abraham as a friend. That's what we're told. That God called Abraham friend. And he spoke to Abraham and said, I'm gonna, I mean, you're going to have a child. Trust me in this. All these years go by. Abraham and Sarah start scheming, and it's Sarah's idea that, that Abraham would go sleep with the slave woman that is Hagar. And Hagar was younger, probably better looking. He said, we're guaranteed to have a child through this woman. Go do that. And this was common, that if a woman went at least 10 years without having children because of the importance of inheritance and family, kind of family uh, continuity that, that the generations would pass on, so the name of Abraham would pass on, this was... Uh, something that you could do within God's law. You could kind of do this thing and take it into your own hands, but Abraham had the promise of God before he did it, so he should have never done this. And the result is that, that instead of a child being born of Sarah first, the firstborn child born of the younger woman, Hagar, who is the slave, was a boy by the name of Ishmael. At this time, Abraham was 86 years old. Abraham's first son is through an adulterous relationship with a woman that is a slave. And through that slave, Ishmael comes. And Genesis 16 describes Ishmael. Ishmael, his name will be called Ishmael, for he shall be, this is who he was, a wild donkey of a man. So that's the firstborn son. He's crazy. He's a wild donkey of a man. And it goes on to say his hand will be against everyone. And he shall dwell over all of his kingsmen, 
And in Genesis 21, 9, we're told that Ishmael, later when Sarah had Isaac, that Ishmael constantly mocked, belittled, and beat up on Isaac. Okay, so this is covenant one. This is the first covenant. I can earn my salvation through the law of God. This is ultimately what, what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you're making covenant one your covenant, you're actually born out of an illegitimate relationship. You're a slave because the woman was a slave, so the child will be a slave. And the law of God will constantly be against the person who is not the law of God. And it tells us that this particular child was born in Arabia at Mount Sinai. Uh, this is a big deal because what came from Mount Sinai? The law of God. Hebrews tells us of Mount Sinai that speaking of the mountain that, that Moses himself said that this mountain couldn't be touched. It was like a blazing fire. Over the mountain was darkness and gloom and a tempest. And it was so terrifying that it said that Moses trembled with fear at that mountain. This is the picture of the law of God given. When Moses went to the mountain, that mountain at the top of Mount Sinai was filled with thunder and fear and hatred and angst. And then Moses came down with the law. And if you remember when he came down, the people were sinning and the first tablets were thrown down and broken in half. Moses had to go back up to the mountain and bring down more law because they were breaking it. He says, this, if you're trying to earn your salvation, he's painting the picture. If you're trying to earn the favor of God, if you think that anything other than Jesus is going to bring you the favor of God, it's like living on Mount Sinai. Anybody want to move there? No. No one wants to move there. No one wants to go there. And then, he, and then there's covenant two, the right covenant. This covenant came later. Remember, Abraham was 86 years old. It took 14 years after this adulterous relationship for Sarah to give birth at 90 years old to Isaac, the son of promise. And God came to Abraham, as I said earlier, as a friend and said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. I'm your friend. Trust me. And this is the covenant of freedom. Now, what's the contrast in all of this? One, one on Mount Sinai is saying that my salvation is birthed through my self-will and my own efforts. See, Abraham had faith when he slept with Hagar, but it was faith in his own thinking, faith in his wife, faith in his own resources, and this ended up causing a ton of familial, just, just chaos and disaster. The family was split in two and divided because of this decision to sleep with Hagar and take his salvation in his own hands. So here's, here's the question which I have to pose to, uh, to myself as well as to the church as a whole. In what ways are you trying to work out your salvation? In what ways are you trying to earn God's favor through your own abilities rather than a radical trust in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Because the one is by self-will and effort, but the other one is a downright miracle. That's the contrast. One is, I have to work for this. I've got to grind for this. I've got to make sure that God is happy with me and satisfied with me by all the things in which I do. And the other one is, how in the world do I come into a relationship with Jesus Christ other than a radical miracle? How in the world does Sarah give birth to a child at 90? It's nothing short of a miracle. It's a miracle. I've been listening to a, <clears throat> a book uh, that our youth pastor, Caleb, turned me on to by a tremendous author and just an amazing woman. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Anyone familiar with her name? Rosaria, she's an amazing woman. 
Let me tell you her story real quick and, and why this is such a, a point of emphasis. She, um, she grew up in a very liberal home. She was taught a lot of liberal ideologies, and she ended up uh, becoming a downright, very strong atheist. She's an author. She's an intellectual, smart woman. And uh, in her life, she, she made a decision that she believed that she was a lesbian. And so she stood up very uh, heavily for uh, same-sex rights and uh, stood up for, for the relationship for, for a man to have that ability, for a woman to have that ability. And she was just anti-gospel, anti-Bible, anti-Jesus. She actually states that her, uh, in, in her memoirs, she states that she believed that Christianity was not only detrimental to society, but that Christians were just plain dumb. Those were, that was her thought. She had this kind of ideology, though, where she said, you know, in order for me to respond to my critics, I always read my, my hate mail. And so she was one of those individuals, strong woman, intellectual woman, not afraid to defend her thoughts or her ideology. So she decided to read her hate mail. So she read her hate mail, and she came across a, 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 a letter from a pastor. And she said the letter intrigued her because it was the most gracious Christian response to her beliefs that she had ever received. He wasn't belittling her. He wasn't telling her that she was wrong. He, he was very welcoming. He was very encouraging. Uh, he was just really, really gracious. And she said it stood out to her so much so that she ended up contacting him and asking if, if she could uh, meet with him because she was basically going to use him as free resource to prove how stupid Christians are. And he invited her in. He invited her into her home. He invited her into uh, his space, and, in, and he fed her, and he, he dialogued with her, and he talked with her. And she said, of meeting the pastor, she said, I walked through the front door as if there was no front door. She said the home was welcoming. It was warm, and she ended up in conversation after conversation, dialogue after dialogue, and eventually the amazing uh, conversion occurred in Rosaria's life. She gave her life to Jesus. She turned her back on her, own, her old lifestyle. Uh, she turned her back on her old sin. She accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. She got married. She plugged into her church and into her community, and she became and, and is a radical influencer for how one person can radically come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. In her book, she shares a story of how hard her mom was. Her mom, very liberal, staunch, very angry against Christianity as well, hated the fact that Rosaria, Rosaria uh, came to a place of where she believed in Jesus. In fact, she would tell her own daughter, the only reason you believe in Jesus is because you're weak, and I'm not weak like you, Rosaria. I'll never accept the gospel. Later on in her life, her mother uh, got cancer and began a slow process towards death. And as her mother went into the hospital uh, to basically spend her last uh, weeks of, of life, Rosaria went in again hoping, worrying about her mother's soul, but also fearful that, that she would uh, incur the wrath of her mother by sharing the gospel in the hospital bed. And so she began to share Jesus with her mom one last time. And her mom looked at her and said, Rosaria, I've read all of your books. If I was ever going to accept Jesus, I would have done it by now. But like I told you, I'm not weak like you are. Time went by. She, her mother began to, became more frail. And Rosaria felt herself pitted against how much do I share my faith and upset my mom and respect my mother's wishes to, to die the way that she wants to die and how much can I speak this gospel into her because I desperately want to see her in heaven and see her life live for eternity. So she came to this conclusion realizing that her mom uh, liked, liked it when Rosaria sang 
So she began to sing the Psalms and the Psalters to her mom. And she would sing Psalm 23, and her mom would listen because she at least appreciated it. She said, in fact, the singing was so impactful that, that some of the hospital staff would come in to sing with her, to sing some of the choruses. And in this, Rosaria stated she saw the influence and the love of God being used within people and, and even other Christians who came and built relationships with her mom and served her mom in her final days. And then she said this, which was interesting. She said that she, she not only learned the art of loving somebody as they're dying, she said the art of actually putting a str- the, the, the straw of fluid to the dying lips of an old woman, the art of loving somebody as they were passing away. She said, I also realized that as the world and the flesh began to weaken in, in someone, that they finally possibly come to a place where they're, they're willing to acknowledge their need for a Savior. And as she sang in one of her songs, the, one of the songs stated how even though we are weak, that we can be strong. And her mom stopped her and said, Rosaria, what is this, this news, this, this language that you use of how can I be strong when I'm weak? Because I'm, I'm physically weak. And she shared with her, well, you're strong because as Paul says here, that, that our, our Jerusalem is above. It's not here on this earth. It's above. It's in the heavens. And she taught that truth to her mother that, that in Jesus we're made strong because our true bodies and our, our true life is really lived in the heavens. And even though our physical bodies are dying away, we're spiritually strong in, in the heavens. And her mom said this, Rosaria, I, I think now I'm weak like you are. And I think I'm ready to receive Jesus as my Savior. And then she looked at her daughter and she said, I just need to know though, what do I do with all of my sin? And Rosaria had the chance to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with her mom, lead her mother into receiving Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And then two days later, her mom passed away and went to heaven. Why do I share that? I share that because because of what what Paul is teaching in the text. Abraham and Sarah are, are are given a baby boy named Isaac at the age of 90 and 100 years old because of the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, the miraculous spirit of Jesus Christ, not because we earn it, not because we do anything. How does someone like Rosaria come to the saving grace of Jesus? Through the miraculousness of God. God is full of miracles, chock full of miracles. In fact, I would say this morning that if you are here and with your mouth and your heart, you can declare that Jesus is your Messiah, you are a walking, living miracle of God. Amen? It's good news. You're not here by accident. Keller says this, the gospel, the gospel is that we do not try to attain a righteousness that our abilities can develop. Rather, we are to receive a righteousness provided through supernatural acts of God in history. And then he defines the supernatural acts of God in history. The miraculous birth, the sin-bearing death, the death-defeating resurrection of Christ. He goes on to say, we need to rely on God, just as Abraham eventually learned that he needed to rely on the miraculous work of God, provided him with a son and an heir. As Abraham needed to switch his faith from his own efforts to God's supernatural work, so do these Galatians, and so does Sierra Bible Church need to look back to Christ's work rather than at our own law-keeping efforts. The good news is that God's plan to save you apart from what you can do has been that way from the ages of old. And it will always be that way. And what's interesting about this, if you note, 
just something I noticed within the text, something I noticed in regards to the historicity of what's happening here. Hagar was probably a lot younger and a lot more attractive. And likewise, the law always seems to be attractive. In fact, Timothy says, Paul tells Timothy that in the end, when Jesus is about to appear and come back, people will be, will, will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and that they'll have an appearance of godliness, but they'll deny his power. It's one thing to look Christian. It's another thing to be Christian. You see, what, what Paul was telling the Jews is, isn't that they, weren't, that, that they weren't Jewish in their thinking. It's that they weren't Jewish enough in their thinking. You're forgetting that we're saved by grace. You're forgetting that you don't have to earn God's love. You're not sitting in the approval that God has given you in spite of you. As children of God, we get to enjoy the Father rather than trying to earn the Father's love. And then the result of this is that the gospel is ultimately for people who aren't fertile. You say, who's the gospel for? People who understand their desperate need to give birth to something. I remember walking with my wife through several miscarriages. We didn't think we were going to have kids. And then one day, the doctor tells us, or the stupid little strip test told us, wasn't a doctor. You know that stick thing, positive or negative. There it was. Like, here we go again. Initially, we didn't rejoice because we knew what it was like to lose. We knew what it was like to go through the, the doctor's appointment and be told there isn't a heartbeat. That was hard. It was difficult. And so we didn't know. And even, even for me, if I'm honest, all nine months, man, I was like, Lord, what are you doing? I know what it is to lose. What are you doing? And then, and then Allie went through like a 28-hour birth, 28 birthing process. And it was, it was all 28 hours of like, ooh, way more for her than me. I'll be clear with that. She did all the work. I stood there and just worried. And, and then when he was born, when our first child was born, I finally had this sigh of relief. Man, Lord, thank you. And then once God opened up her womb, it was like, okay, well, now we've got to take precautions to make sure that, you know, after four kids now, I'm like, okay, Lord, we're good. We're good. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so incredibly thankful for all four. I don't need five. I'm good with four. And, and somehow, even in Scripture, God, you see these, these, there's these miracles where, where God makes people who weren't fertile, fertile. And that doesn't mean he's going to make everybody fertile. And I had a mom share that with me in the first service, after the first service. Like, that doesn't mean that, that God's going to open up your womb physically, but it does mean that God will open up your womb spiritually. That if you're looking for breakthroughs, births in your life, you're looking for people to come to the saving grace of Jesus through you, it can happen, and it's supposed to happen. And the only reason I think that it doesn't happen is because we're too fearful of being judged for the message of Jesus Christ. We're too fearful of what people might say or what people might do or losing our job. We're scared so, so we don't share the goodness of Jesus because we're afraid of what people will say. And Paul's saying, listen, if you want to see miracles, you've got to open up the door to the gospel to people you don't know. You've got to be willing to, to be persecuted because ultimately what Paul is saying in this book is the Judaizers are more of a threat to the church than the world is. It's only in the church that the church can produce a Judas. The person who's in the church who judges, the person who wants to use the church for its own goods and its own means. The church, in many ways, is the most damaging thing to the church. You remember when Jesus is sitting at the table and he says, there's a betrayer amongst us. Several of the disciples stated, is it I, Lord? It's the best thing any Christian could do is to think, am I the Judas? Am I the Pharisee? 
Am I the one who's judgmental? Am I the one who's not opening in relationships? Am I the one that's not practicing grace with my friends and my family and my church and, and my people? Am I the one that's not practicing grace with my pastors and my elders? Am I, am I the Judas? Because the Judas is the one who could destroy the church. If the church could be destroyed, which it can't. We have to understand here, Paul says it this way, and, and I didn't mention this in the first service, and I regret that I didn't. Look at what Paul says in, in verse, uh, verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Okay, we want to know the Word of God? You want to know what we do with Pharisees? You want to know what we do with Judaizers? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. What does he say? He says, if you have Judaizers in your midst, kick them out of the church. They've not been good for you. They'll continue to not be good for you. They're not going to change their minds. And Paul tells us, he says, just so you understand, go back and look. Another big takeaway, verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, your children of promise, not children of the law, your children of promise, but just as that time he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, through Hagar, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Okay, this is, this is amazing. Because not only do we recognize, again, just to, to emphasize here, that, that if you're born again, you have the ability to produce radical fruit in your life, to see people come to Jesus, to see stories like the Rosaria shares in her book, to see amazing things happen for the gospel. But we have to understand, as he states in verses 28 and 29, there's a war going on between Isaac and Ishmael that happened with Isaac and Ishmael and is happening today and will always happen until Jesus comes back. So what am I saying? Number one, Isaac and Ishmael never got along. If you read the story in the Old Testament, you'll see that Ishmael constantly berated and beat up Isaac. Likewise, Paul says, remember he said, some of this stuff's to be interpreted allegorically. There's pictures here. Likewise, he says, Isaac and Ishmael are still at warfare today, and he's talking specifically of the flesh, that which is born of the flesh, that which is born of the spirit. And as a Christian, for your entire life, you will be wrestling between the flesh that you are, are walking in this suit that you wear, you will always have the flesh warring against you, wanting that which is anti-gospel, wanting something more than Jesus alone, and you'll have the spirit which resonates, Abba, Father, I need Jesus and Jesus alone. And he says, you'll always be at warfare. And, and I've met Christians who are in their 80s who will tell you that warfare has never ceased to exist in them. For those of you who've been saved for, for more than 20 years, would you say this is true? Okay, because if it's not, you're a Judaizer. We've got to talk afterwards because it's time for you to go. <laughs> so I know that sounds harsh, but, but the idea is that the Judaizers, I think, would, would come unto the saving grace of Jesus. And I, I think it's also stating the reality is that there's a Judaizer. This is the first message in the series. There's a Judaizer in every single one of our own hearts. And what he's saying is you've got to get rid of that guy. You've got to mortify that guy, as John Owen would say. You've you got to crucify him. You've got to get rid of him because he's unhealthy for you. He's going to beat you up and he's going to persecute you. And so you've got this, this history warfare. Isaac and Ishmael hated each other. You have this current Christian warfare. Your flesh and the spirit don't like each other. And then you have the history in the future and the history right now outside of the church warfare. Because if you know your history, you know that through Isaac came the Jews and through Ishmael came what? Islam and, and the Arab nation. And the, the Arabs and the Jews 
are at constant tension and warfare even today. And so within the Muslim faith, the Muslim faith states, yes, just like you Christians, we believe in Abraham. However, Ishmael was the firstborn. And since Ishmael's the firstborn, that's the way it should be. be. Ishmael's actually the father of salvation, which comes through the shaky mountain of Mount Sinai. It's the complete opposite of the gospel. And, And so the Muslim faith believes that you're saved through works according to walking uh, with Ishmael in Ishmael's shoes. And the Jewish faith is the complete opposite. We are children of promise and faith. There's nothing that we can do. We receive it because God was a friend to Abraham and he's gracious enough to be friends with us and to make us children of God. Do you see the great tension? This is why when anyone says, when anyone starts preaching in the political realm, we can bring peace in the Middle East, they do not know how to speak into the issue. They don't understand that it goes back for thousands of years. This is a problem between the Jews and the Muslim faith that will always exist in tension as long as that, those two religions exist and, until Jesus comes back and makes a new heaven and a new earth. So there's this warfare that occurs on multiple levels that still exists today. The two sons will always be fighting against one another. Again, Keller says, those seeking salvation through law obedience will always persecute the children of the free woman, those enjoying salvation by grace. Ishmael's will persecute Isaac's. Why is this? Because the gospel, listen, this is a key statement. The gospel is more threatening to religious people than non-religious people. That's a heavy statement. This idea that I'm saved by grace actually makes people who are trying to earn their salvation more fearful than the world. See, sometimes for us, the world outside, those who don't know Jesus, as long as you understand that they don't know Jesus and that you do, they're less of a threat to you. Society is less of a threat to you than those inside of the church that will, will make you add something to your salvation and to your walk and your sanctifying growth in Jesus Christ other than Jesus alone. It will always be Jesus alone through the scriptures alone for our salvation. It will never cease to be that way. And dare we ever add anything, anything to our salvation. And just to keep beating the drum, this is why we are not going to die on certain hills. Because do you know that Jesus desires that Democrats and Republicans come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Do you, do you know that, that, that Jesus doesn't care whether you use a Google phone or you use an iPhone or you use a Windows or you use a Mac or if you're a Ford guy or a Dodge guy or you're a, you're a North Star skier or you're a Squaw skier? Jesus doesn't care. He sees past all of those things and it comes down to this. It ultimately comes down to this. Everything in regards to your walk with Jesus Christ comes down to you finally admitting that you have a need for nothing other than Jesus as your Savior. I've heard many say it before this way. The only thing that is needed for salvation is need, and we're too prideful to admit it. We're too prideful to say, you know what, I don't have it together. No one in this room has it together, so you don't have to act like you have it together. You don't have it together, do you? And again, if you feel like you have it together, we need to talk. Because it's my job to prove to you how desperate you are in need of a Savior that will save you in spite of you. And here's the kicker. 
If you can see each other that way, the church will be more unified than it ever has been in history. If you can see the world that way, more people will come to Jesus than you could ever think or imagine. You have to get beyond yourself. Get beyond how great you think you have it. Stop thinking your theology is the only one. The only real theology we really have nailed down is that Jesus saves sinners. That Jesus is God. Do you know what I mean by that? Now, someone's going to say, oh, he said that theology doesn't matter. Anybody who knows me knows theology matters. Your theology and your doctrine change how you live. But there's just certain things we don't need to argue about. You know Jesus is coming back? Is he coming back uh, before the tribulation or after? I don't know. I'm not God. He's coming back. Can you all say amen to that? Okay, we don't need to fight over it. We can have good, healthy Christian conversation about it, can't we? But don't invite a non-believer into your house and start arguing about that stupid stuff. They don't know. And that's the thing. If you read that book, it's, we have one left in the books there, bookstore. The gospel comes with a house key. Rosaria shares how her home has literally become the place to, save the, to, to bring people in her neighborhood who don't know Jesus together. She has people from her church come. She has people who don't know Jesus from all kinds of political spectrums. They all know they're welcome. She said, you know, it takes a real close relationship for someone to say, uh, to, she said, she said uh, it takes a real close relationship with a non-Christian for someone to be in your home, drink your last cup of hot coffee, and tell you that Christians are so dumb that, uh, that, that your brains come out of your ears or something to that degree. He said, it was a guy in her house saying, you know, you guys don't think anything through. You guys are are so loving and accepting of everyone, he said, that you're not thinking. Your brain's just coming out of your ear. I'll drink your last cup of coffee. And, you know. and she said that's the kind of home that she wants to have. And that's the kind of place that Paul's trying to teach the, the, the Galatians and the, the Judaizers. The church is at its most powerful when it welcomes in non-believers, even though, even though, they, they are not believers. And let me, let me just state this, and I know I'm ranting here a little bit, and it's important because it's, it's backbone a part of who I believe that Jesus wants us to be. If you're not a Christian and you're here, you're welcome here, and we want to invite you into our family no matter what. And through being part of our family and being part of what we do, we would hope at some point you would come alive to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But inside the Christian community, you're not an outsider. We don't want you to be an outsider. We want you to be an insider. We want you to be part of the family. We want you to experience the goodness of Jesus Christ because we realize that nobody can earn their right to be part of the family. The door is open. The front door is there, but it's not there. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, um, <clears throat> we thank you. Lord, that you, you're in the business of making people who don't know you, to come to know you, for making people who aren't part of your family to be a part of your family. I ask that you just continue to do an amazing work in our church. Uh, Lord, each week, whenever I share some of these things, I, I feel just uh, an incredible loss of words, Lord. I, I just feel like I don't have the ability or the vocabulary or even the energy sometimes to just communicate some of the beautiful stuff that I know to be true in your word. And after all, that's what it's about. It's me admitting that I am just a man. I am frail just as anyone else is frail. I'm in need of salvation just as much as anyone else is in need of salvation. And so I ask, in spite of my weakness, in spite of where I've communicated wrong or said something that I just didn't intend to say, 
Lord, would your spirit go forth and honor your true word and do the work that is necessary to make us like you. We're not to be looking to any man. We're not to be looking to a denomination. We're not to be looking to to some particular leader other than the man that is Jesus. So may we, as we worship now, fix our eyes upon you, the author and the finisher of our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.
shall come in trumpet sound Oh may I then in Him be found Dressed in His righteousness alone Faultless stand before the Lord, I pray for your congregation and as a church, Lord, that we would be weak and you strong, Lord. I pray that we'd be careful. Um, we'd hate our sin and love the sinners. And Lord, I pray that you'd work through us by your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Sunday. God bless you.